Morning, everyone. Lucky to see everyone. If you have a Bible or a phone, don't you want to open it up to John uh, chapter 11? That's who we're going to be uh, this morning for the whole morning, John chapter 11. We'll bounce around once or twice, but that's pretty much the passage that we're going to be uh, working through. <clears throat> Let me give you a brief summary if you've missed the other weeks. Uh, we're doing a series on emotionally um, healthy disciples. We said that in week one, it's important to look beneath the surface because uh, that's where the main action is and figure out what our emotions tell us about what God is, what, what is happening in our lives or what God is trying to teach us. Second week, we looked at the importance of breaking free from the past, how formative your family of origin is in shaping you, um, and how it's important not to break free from your family necessarily, but the effects of the legacy of particularly the negative influences that your family have passed down onto you. Third week, we looked at the importance of embracing our limits, that our limits are a God-given gift uh, to us, and both in our abilities and our competencies and how fast we run in life, um, limits are a grace from God. And then last week we looked at uh, how we measure maturity. And we said that love is actually the measure of maturity. It doesn't matter how much you give, how much you come to church, how much you serve, uh, whatever it is, uh, how many Christian friends you have, that love is the measure of maturity. And the scriptures, uh, if you don't have love, you have nothing. Um, no matter how impressive you may appear on the outside or um, appear to yourself, if you lack love, uh, like Paul says, you're just like a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. And so we said love is the measure of maturity. This week, uh, as we look at making progress as emotionally healthy disciples, we're looking at the issue of how we embrace uh, grief and loss, how we embrace grief and loss. And I realize that for some of you, you came here on Sunday morning, you know, like, yeah, you know, church, let's go. Lord's going to speak to me. I'm going to leave all pumped and stuff. And I, you will, Lord willing, leave having met with Jesus. But as we look, obviously, at a, at a topic like embracing grief and loss, uh, some of what we're going to look at this morning will be difficult and is challenging. But there's lots of joy on the other side. And we'll say that multiple times this morning, that unless... Unless you learn, we learn to embrace grief and loss, you become an emotionally stunted, joyless Christian. That's how important it is. Um, and I'm going to make several points as we look through the, series, uh, the story, the account of Jesus uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. That's going to be the passage we're going to look at, and we're going to look at a few things that I believe the Lord is trying to teach us this morning. So let me read the passage. Um, I don't normally do, so I've actually preached on this when we did the series on John. So, you know, if you've been around for a while, normally what we do is just work through a passage. You'll be like, look at that, look at that, look at that. We deal with everything that's there. I'm not going to do that so much with this one because I've already done it with this. And you can go and find the, the preach on Lazarus in the John thingy, either somewhere online. It'll be somewhere. Ask Dave if you, I don't know how the heck you find sermons. Are they podcasted? On the website. Go to the website and you'll find something there. But so if you want the whole treatment of, of Lazarus, it's there somewhere. I'm not going to do that, but I am going to read the whole passage, okay? Uh, I'm going to read from beginning to end, and we're not going to deal with everything, but I don't want to skip over and like leave out little bits and pieces. We won't deal with all of it, but I, I hate not reading a whole narrative in the Bible. So we're just going to read it all, <laughs> but I won't deal with all of it because there's some specific points that I think the Lord wants us to look at. This morning, John 11, 
from verse 1 all the way to 44, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Okay. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with her perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard um, that he was sick, he stayed two more days in that place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does not stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were um, with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word again this morning. We want to pause and look to you, lift our hearts um, to you, lift our eyes to you, and acknowledge again like we do week by week that we, we both long to hear your voice and need to hear your voice. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst us, and we welcome him now as our teacher. We pray, Holy Spirit, Father, that you'd send the Spirit to open up our eyes and soften our hearts and reveal, reveal you to us and reveal our own hearts to us, that we may see you more clearly, we may see ourselves more clearly, that we may hear um, your words to us, and that we may be transformed and shaped in your presence through your word this morning. These are difficult things that we are looking at this morning, Father, and we need much of your grace, much of your mercy, much of your help. Even as we look at these difficult things, we know that joy awaits us. And so we pray that you would help us now for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a note taker, I think there's um, like four points. I can't remember. I never make a list at the beginning how many there are. But point number one is this, that grief and loss come to everyone. Grief and loss come to everyone. Um, I, was, I was very mindful preparing uh, this sermon um, of the congregation that we are a part of here and what different people are going through. Um, you know, I, I, know, I know most people, but I know some people better than others and have journeyed through different things with different people. And you know, I've been a pastor for a while, and I was just winding my mind back and thinking of all the different things that happen to believers and that they go through. And I think you can probably put um, loss and grief into two different categories. Like the, there's the catastrophic, there's the catastrophic um, area, and then there's the the less the lesser area. Um, you know, not everyone experiences death and and suicide, the suicide of their children. I was remembering, Easter always stands out for me because it was one, one year, I don't even remember how many years ago, we were called out to a family whose teenage son, teen, teenage son had dressed himself up in his school uniform and hung himself in, in the family house um, this weekend, the weekend before Easter. And it's just like, it's a marker for me every year when we get there. And I remember walking into that house and thinking, how on earth 
do we help these parents? What, what do we say to this family? What on earth is going to happen here? Lord, how do we help these people? And, and again and again and again, every time I ride past West Park Cemetery, I remember burying a stillborn child, 40 weeks, stillborn, and that the family chose to have a, a burial. And I remember this little white coffin that we lowered into the ground there. You won't believe it. It was like a scene from a movie, pouring with rain. You know, we're all standing there in the rain, umbrellas, and you, oh, I remember the rain hitting that box as it went in, and the mom almost jumping in there after that box there. Guys, if it hasn't already washed over the shores of your life, grief and pain and loss and suffering will come your way. Some of it will be catastrophic, but not everyone is going to experience some of the things that I've shared with you. Some of it is just the loss of friendship, just the loss of friendships, the loss of dreams, the loss of a life that you hoped would turn out like this way. Changes in places where you live. Leaving a house that you've lived in for many, many years is a massive loss. You know, some people would say it's not a catastrophic thing, it's a new season. That's a difficult thing. Everyone goes through different kinds of loss and grief. And unless, as Christians, we learn how to deal with these things well, we, like I said, we remain emotionally immature and stunted, and we remain joyless. And so it's an essential thing for us to learn how to process grief and loss, because it happens to, to all of us. And the one thing I wanted to mark and that I noticed with fresh eyes in this story is this, that loss and grief will come to you regardless of your proximity to Jesus. There is a lot of nonsense out there in the Christian world that says if you're a Christian, then you are blessed, you remain under his cover, no harm will come near your tent, and a whole bunch of Christians walking around completely bewildered because it feels like a lot of harm has come near their tent. A lot of difficulty has washed over the shores of their life. It's like um, somebody told me that because I'm a Christian, God's got me and he's going to protect me from all of this stuff. And then you look at the reality of life and it's like it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't pan out that way. And I would argue that, um, you know, I can obviously hear the direction I would argue. say, I don't think the Bible makes that promise to you that in an immediate sense, God will protect you from every, um, in every instance, from every difficulty and every loss and every grief and every heartache. That's not what it means. And particularly, it doesn't matter if you are like Jesus' best friends. These are like some of his best buddies. You know, when Jesus needed a, a place to go to watch the rugby, uh, he would go to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. They were, his, they were his chanas. They would hang out together, and it says he loved them, and it mentions it a couple times in the story that he loved them. That's why you see him weeping in some ways when he gets there, even though he knows how this is all going to turn out. Um, these were his friends, and he loved them. You can be as close to Jesus as you want. It doesn't guarantee that you are immune from suffering and difficulty, loss and grief. Grief and loss will come to everyone. I know... Um, I remember Claire used to work at Scripture Union, and there was a, um, a colleague of hers who, who got given a car. Um, somebody had blessed her with a car. I remember it was green. It was like a green golf. 
You know, the golf used to come, like the little city golf used to come and it's like vomit green. That's the best way I can describe it. It wasn't British racing green. It was like vomit green. She then matched stickers. She got vomit green stickers to put all over the said car with scriptures and all this kind of stuff. Like, and I remember the big one at the back, like Psalm 91, like Psalm 91, like no harm is going to come near this car. And I remember like wrestling through this, like just because you put a sticker on your car doesn't mean that the cops won't stop you and some Muppet's going to drive into you. Someone's going to steal that car. You know, like as Christians, we've got this kind of weird thing that if you sprinkle Jesus fairy dust on your belongings, then no one's going to steal them. If you put a sticker on your car, no one will drive into you. And it's not a biblical truth that in every way, I think God does, God does protect God does save us. God does rescue us from many difficulties, many trials, and many dangers. And will, this is very important, will, in an ultimate sense, rescue you from everything. And no harm will overcome you that will ultimately destroy you. Because even if they were to take your life, it's a promotion to glory. And it's an, it's an upgrade, as it were. So there's no, the, the scriptures are true that nothing can overcome you in an ultimate sense. But putting stickers on your car and, and you know, even pleading the blood of Jesus over all your things. I used to have a whole bunch of mates who used to always pray that all the time. They would plead the blood of Jesus. They would pray a hedge of protection, all of these things. And somehow, somehow, life manages to sneak through the hedge of protection that you've prayed. It's amazing. And I don't want to sound disparaging or dismissive of it. I just am observing with my own eyes the reality of what actually happens in the world. That God is not on call as our butler to keep us from all harm and grief and loss. It gets through and it gets to us and maybe it's already got to you. If it hasn't yet, it will. Why? Why? Because, well, as C.S. Lewis famously said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I can't tell you how many people I've sat with who've been awakened to the reality of God, the reality of the presence of God in their life through grief and loss and suffering. I have yet, I've yet to have a deep and meaningful conversation with somebody whose life is going swimmingly, who's drowning in abundance, sit me down and say, I've become aware of God through all of my excess and the fact that everything in my life is going swimmingly. It doesn't happen. God whispers in pleasure. He shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's not that God delights in suffering and pain and loss. It's that God uses it and redeems it for a greater purpose than itself. God redeems those things for a greater purpose. That's the first thing that I want us to see is that grief and loss comes to all of us. And I want you just to pause quickly. I know this is a difficult and a different kind of sermon, but just to sit and think, what condition are you in this morning? Are you still reeling? If you are, this is a great place to be. I hope it's a great place to be. That you sit here this morning still with your disappointments, your grief, your suffering, maybe even processing it real time here this morning. Because I believe that the family of God is the best place 
for us to journey through those things. I'm not anti um, counselors and helpers and all that kind of stuff. I do just believe those, those can help, but the family of God is best equipped to help particularly God's people process the pain and the loss and the grief that we endure as believers in this world. The second thing that happens and that you see here in this passage is that grief and loss expose us. Grief and loss and suffering expose us. It exposes what you think of God when it washes up on your shores. You can, somebody can say, oh, I believe God's like this, oh, my life's like this, whatever, and then uh, um, some grief or loss or suffering will come, and then you ultimately see what they really believe about God. And you, you see it here, um, even with Mary and Martha, you see it, you see it twice um, in this passage. Uh, there's a phrase that they use, hey, if you had been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. If, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. We know who you are. We've seen some of what you have done and what you're able to do. But you weren't here, and so he died. I don't know if they were treating Jesus more like a lucky charm um, kind of thing, but they're aware of Jesus' power to, to save and to heal. Can we try and fix this and take some of the boom out of this? I'm not working. Maybe I should just yell. Is it annoying, or can I just push through, persevere? We'll pray that the, for grace to interfere between my microphone and your ears. Hey, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I wonder if you've ever said something similar to that. Hey, God, if you had just done this, this wouldn't have happened. And there is something in the depths of your heart. We're not going to wear it up front where everyone can see, but it's buried in the depths of our heart. Hey, if God cared more, if God was more involved, X wouldn't have happened. God wouldn't have allowed this. If God was good, he wouldn't have done this. If God was involved, if God wasn't busy with this and that, if God was truly able, blah, 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 this wouldn't have happened. Grief and loss expose what's going on in our hearts. Mary and Martha are heartbroken. They're heartbroken. They've lost their brother. Not only have they lost their brother, but this, this has thrown them into potential ruin. He is the man of the house. He is the provider. Back in that day in the culture, if you lost the man of your house, you would just left this woman. It was potentially catastrophic financially for them. There was lots of things wired into the loss of Lazarus here, not just the loss of a brother. And they're a bit bleak with Jesus. Hey, if you'd, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And yet still somehow in this, they, there is an element of trust. There's some hope. Hey, Jesus, I believe that whatever you want to happen, you can still make happen. Grief and loss will expose your view of what God is like. Is he good? Is he consistently good? Is he able to help you? Is he interested? Does he see? Does he see? If you've never asked that question, does God see my life? It will still come for you. Because they, God will allow, because, not because he's vindictive, but because he's gracious. And there are, so I'll say this multiple times, there are certain things that you'll only learn about God through pain and suffering. There's certain things that you can only learn about God through pain and suffering. They're, they're almost locked up exclusively there, that unless you tread those paths, unless you go through that heartache, you don't unlock those treasures. You don't unlock that, uh, the richness of that. There is, 
I think nothing worse than to suffer without purpose. This is the difference, I believe, one of the main differences between Christianity and the rest of the world. That the, the Christian message, the gospel, puts this and says all of our suffering is with purpose. It all has purpose. It, it, as it were, it comes from his hand. He allows it, and it has purpose. The rest of the world who don't believe in God would say suffering is random. We don't know where it came from. We don't know. You've got no one to blame because you don't know where it came from and who has authority and power over your life. We as Christians suffer with purpose and it changes everything. Grief and loss doesn't just expose Mary and Martha in this story. It exposes others. Have a look in verse 36 there. There's others there. They're watching. Some of them look at Jesus, Jesus weeping and they say, oh, look, I love them. And there's other Jews who are there and they say, hey, this guy had power to heal others, but he couldn't save this guy. What's going on? Maybe that's been part of your struggle. Hey, God, I've seen what you've done in other people's lives. And then when it gets to me, you seem to have run out of power. You seem to have run out of provision. You're blessed there, and I'm still waiting. You have the power because you did it there, and you didn't do it here. And sometimes that's even harder. When you compare, you see, oh, the grace ran out. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And so some strains or aberrations of Christianity will put the weight on you to say, pray more, be more godly, be holier, get your act together, and then you will unlock God's favor and blessing, and that's utter nonsense. It's not how God works. But the reality can be disconcerting when you look around and you see how God works in other people's lives. And yes, he healed that person, and he let your spouse die. Hmm. Why did that happen? I don't know. I was, on, I was on the phone with a guy. They, they're a part of our church. They're down in Cape Town at the moment. The wife's endured her second operation now for a, a tumor in her, in her neck that's affecting her nerves and stuff like that. She's having to go through radiology now. Lord willing, it's going to turn out well. We're praying for a full recovery and a healing. But I can tell you guys, I've sat with others where it's gone the other direction. And then we've had a funeral on our hands. Is, God, does God's grace run out? It can feel like that. That's our wrestle. But ultimately, this is what the point I'm trying to make is that the grief and loss expose us. It exposes our view of God. It, it brings it to the fore. It's like, oh, this is what you really believe about him. It exposes our frailty. It exposes our inability to protect yourself. We feel like we're so sufficient, don't we? So often, look at us. I can provide for myself. I can do all of these things. Humankind is the pinnacle. And then you go and visit a doctor. And you get the news that you never wanted to hear. And you come face to face with your own frailty. Or it washes up on somebody else's shores. Or the relationship you thought would endure forever falls apart. Suffering and loss and grief expose our frailty. But not only that, our love of ease and comfort and our avoidance of all kinds of pain. We will do whatever it takes to avoid pain as human beings. We do whatever we can. Even if it means burying our head in the sand. Let me say that again. Even if it means burying your head in the sand and ignoring things that are right in front of your eyes as a coping mechanism, we will do, it's an ostrich. It is an ostrich hoop. 
I've never actually seen an ostrich with its head in the sand. I'm just going on hearsay that that's actually what they do. Has anyone actually ever seen an ostrich with their head in the, hand, head in the sand? Maybe it's not true. Next week, I will give you an update on that. But, um, you know, we can try and avoid it kind of thing. And just like, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not a thing. And just let me... It doesn't help, obviously. So it exposes us. That's the second thing. The third thing is it, is it reveals Jesus. It reveals Jesus. It's amazing when you read the story is that the Jesus seems to be dragging his feet. He gets the message, hey, Lazarus is sick. You know, there's obviously a delay in the message being delivered. He, Lazarus may have already died. But what does Jesus do? It almost reads comically, doesn't it? It says Jesus loved Mary and Martha and stuff, so he decided to stay another two days. There must be a translation uh, error there. Because if you love them, surely you would gather up the disciples and you'd rush. You know, that's what we do when crisis hits. We go to people's homes. We get on the phone. We, we get involved. We don't take two more days. Be like, okay, cool. I'll give them a call next week sometime and see how it's going. That's not what you do when you love people. You rush in there. And yet Jesus says there's a reason why it seems like he's dragging his feet because he, it's important that the glory of God is revealed in this situation. And he wanted the glory of God to be revealed in the resurrection of Lazarus, not in the healing of Lazarus. I'll say it again. He wanted his glory revealed in the resurrection, not in the healing, because he was trying to make a point that he is the resurrection and the life now and into eternity. He is the true resurrection and the life. It reveals Jesus. It reveals so much about Jesus. We don't even have time to go into all of it but it reveals some of the humanity of God. There are only a few times in the scriptures where you hear, where it's recorded that Jesus weeps. And this is, you know, it's, it's famous for being the shortest verse in the Bible. You know, the verses were added afterwards. It's not actually a thing, but it's a very short sentence. This Jesus wept. It's a whole sentence. Jesus wept. He doesn't come into that situation and just be like, well, I know how this is going to turn out. You know, everyone else is weeping and he's just like cold and removed. Isn't it amazing? I always struggle with this. I wrestle with this, just how human Jesus is, that he comes in. He knows. He knows that he is the resurrection and the life. He knows that he's going there to call Lazarus out of that tomb, back to life. And he's still weeping because he sees brokenness in Mary and Martha and others weeping and it moves him. That's the heart of God. Sometimes when suffering and loss and grief wash up on your shores, the temptation for us is to think, God, you don't care. You're powerful, but you don't care. This doesn't affect you. You might be able to help me, but this doesn't affect you. You don't feel this like I feel this. And the Bible makes a compelling case that says, no, no, God feels it more than we feel it. He feels grief more than we feel it. Jesus weeps. When God reveals himself to Moses, what did he call himself? He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the very nature of who God is, is compassion. And when we suffer and we grieve and we experience loss, we see here in this story, we see Jesus moving towards them in their grief. He doesn't come to them and say, listen, man up, dry your eyes, 
get a grip. What does he do? He comes to them and he weeps with those who are weeping. He weeps with those who are weeping. I want to remind you this morning that if you or others you know are grieving or suffering loss, this is the posture of God towards you. He's the God who weeps with those who weep. He's not the God who, like your friends or your parents or whoever else, might say to you, listen, enough, enough with the weeping. Get your act together. Let's go. He's the God who enters in, comes close, and weeps. That's his posture. That's his heart. But he doesn't just weep. He doesn't just move towards them. He comes and he shows his glory. This is, this is the hope wired into suffering, loss, and grief that God is able to show his glory in the midst of what you think is your life going sideways. Mary and Martha are sitting there thinking, my brother's died. A, we've lost a brother. B, this could be financial ruin. And God uses that to show his glory. They didn't see it coming. They had no anticipation of a resurrection in this story. There's no anticipation of a resurrection. Second last thing. You need a short... this one better. Sorry, it's driving me crazy, even if it's not driving you, it's crazy. I can't concentrate, so give me a second while I rearrange the stage. Here we go. Back to the old school cables. You need a short-term and a long-term view of how to deal with suffering, loss, and grief. You need a short-term view and a long-term view. In the short term, you need to be clear on what the Scripture teaches that God is where when you're suffering. With you. He's with you. That, that's the physical thing we see of Jesus coming and joining Mary and Martha. But the Scriptures tell us again and again, Psalm 91, the famous psalm about nothing's going to touch you at the end. Verse 15, it says, when you suffer, God is with you. God is with you. I only have like a couple of sermons that I use at funerals, you know, because there's only so much that you can kind of say um, there. And one of the points that I'll make at every sermon is this. When, when suffering, loss, grief um, come into our lives, our normal temptation is to ask questions and to want answers. Why did this happen? How could God allow this? Yappa, yappa, whatever the question is, legit kind of questions. With a lot of the people that I've sat with, the suffering is real. There's genuine questions. Do you know what you need more than answers? Is presence. You need the presence of God in the midst of suffering more than you need answers. Why? Because you may not like the answer. You may, God doesn't A, owe you an answer for why he's allowed anything. He doesn't owe us answers. And you may not like the answer. What's way better? And what I have experienced again and again is that presence is way better than answers. That is one thing God promises is presence. So when it comes to a short-term view of how we make progress in this, remember that God is with us in the midst of suffering, loss, and grief. And then we take a long-term view. And we remember that Jesus promised that it's not always going to be like this. And that part of 
the reality of his kingdom breaking into this world is that God is in, ushered in, Jesus has ushered in his kingdom that will come to fulfillment one day and read with me in Revelation 21 verse 3. This is something worth reading again and again, especially when we suffer grief and loss and pain. Apostle John says this in Revelation, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. I don't know if you, sorry, I don't, I don't want to belabor this point. Have a look at verse three there. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Who speaks from a throne? This is not narration. This is not narration. This is God speaking, okay? Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. If you haven't read that passage and it hasn't choked you up, there hasn't been enough grief that's washed over the shores. This is the hope of Christians. That one day we're not going to shed any tears. We're not. We're not going to have to sit with our friends and our family members and strangers and weep with them. There's not going to be any grief. No crying, no pain. Some of you are in pain this morning. There's going to be no pain, nothing, no death. Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, death, grief, and pain will be finally and fully realized in the new kingdom and he will be our God. He will be with us on the earth and we will live without any of that stuff and we will live in joy. That's what he's got for us. And that's where we're going. You need a short-term view and you need a long-term view. And we live in the in-between. We live now where we experience some of God's presence with us, helping us through this. And we live achingly waiting achingly waiting for the fulfillment of all of these things. Let me close by sharing about how I think we can move forward. I think we need to learn to lament. I think we need to learn to lament. What is lamenting? Well, lamenting is in some ways out of favor these days. It's not a popular thing that people do. I mean, it's a biblical thing. There's a whole book called Lamentations. You know, it's a, it's a good and a biblical and a Christian thing to do. But what do we often do? When grief and loss and suffering come our way, we either, we either bottle stuff up, we just take it in. And whether you've been conditioned to that or you don't have an outlet for it, we just bottle stuff up. The, the problem is that stuff sneaks out. And when it sneaks out, it's almost always disastrous and it's ugly and it's damaging. You can't bottle up suffering and grief and loss forever, guys. You know this. You know this if you've ever endured this kind of stuff. It's impossible to bottle it. The bottle will break. The bottle will break. Bottling things up is not healthy. Sometimes people vent things in unhealthy ways. They go through suffering and loss and grief and they think the way to process this is just to blab it all over social media, like how rough life is or how terrible, but we just throw it before random people and that's not necessarily helpful either. Venting things 
uh, is not good. It's, it's not a biblical view. Lamenting is different. And we see this pattern all over, all over the Bible, but we see it particularly in the Psalms. Have you ever wondered why there's so many Psalms? I mean, do we need 150 Psalms? You know, a lot of them say similar things, don't they? If you've ever read through all of them multiple times, they kind of like repeat themselves. And you know what one phrase repeats again and again and again in the Psalms? How long, O Lord? If you don't believe me, go do a word search when you get home. How long, O Lord? And see how many Psalms that rocks up there where the psalmist is saying, how long, O Lord? How long will you be quiet? How long will you reject me forever? How long will my enemies triumph over me? How long am I going to keep going this? Hey, have you forgotten me? Hey, can't you hear anymore? Hello? And those are captured for us, not for interest's sake, but for prayer. For us to be able to harness those words and go to God and say, how long, O Lord? I want to read Psalm 13 with you briefly. You can see this is, what, this is just one example that I picked, Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Because I want to encourage you this morning not to do a patch-up job on your grief and your loss and your suffering. This is the temptation of every Christian to do a patch-up job. Like when we have Lalo's in our pool and, you know, with two boys, they, they destroy those things. And we've got a whole bunch of those little stickers that you patch over the thing there and you just pray that sticker holds and it gives them another week or two on that Lalo at best. And then it's another sticker and then the Lalo's history, off you are to the crazy store again, another Lalo. Neither the stickers help a little bit, but they don't, they don't repair. If you do a patch-up job on the suffering and the loss and the grief that you feel, you're kicking the can down the road. That's not what God wants for us. And lamenting is this, it, it, it encourages us to take our pain into the presence of God and to process it there. And to feel all of the feeling, to mourn, to be brokenhearted and to experience what the scripture says that God is close to the brokenhearted and he binds up the brokenhearted. You don't live there, but you do stay there until he has healed your brokenness. Sometimes with some catastrophic losses, you visit again and again and again and you visit all the way through your life. You do. Because some wounds are really deep. Some loss is 
life-defining. And so you go again and again. Every time you feel it washing over, it rising up again, what do you do? You don't ignore it, you don't vent it, you lament it, you go back and you learn to wait in the presence of God with tears, with all of your words. I love the way the psalmist phrases it again and again, pour out your heart to the Lord. Some of us have got such a polite relationship with the Lord. You've never really got angry with him about anything. You've never really been honest about how you're feeling. You feel like that would be disrespectful, that he might strike you with lightning. The Bible has a completely different view. It says, pour out your heart to the Lord. Use the language, how long, Lord? How long are we going to do this? Are you going to reject me forever? Are you going to be silent? How long? It's okay to get angry with God when you're facing grief and loss and disappointment and suffering. Pour out your heart to the Lord. We're going to spend some time sharing in communion together as we close the service out. And all I want us to do this morning is wait in the presence of God for yourself. For for some of you, this is information that will be helpful at a future time. Um, You know, when you run into pain and loss and suffering. For some of you, this is real time and you're processing maybe what's happened recently or very long ago and you have made varying levels of progress. My sense is that if the majority of of us are honest with ourselves, more of us are struggling with some area of loss or grief or pain or suffering than we're willing to admit. And as I said earlier, the joy is on the other side of lamenting. The joy is because those who have had their hearts bound up by the Lord are singing with joy. It's, It's very difficult to sing with a broken heart. It's very difficult to live life joyously with a broken heart. That's why God says, I'll bind up the broken hearted. He comes to you. And I think he's giving you a gift this morning of this truth from the story of Lazarus to sit in his presence, to share in communion, to remember that Jesus is the God who weeps. That he went to the cross to bear our pain and our loss and our suffering in our place so that he can come this morning and offer you a hope and help not answers, but presence. Not answers, but presence. And he can, he can do it. He can cause joy to come out of the midst of even the darkest depths. And so as we come to the Lord in communion, I want to encourage you to, to take